Welcome to the Rumpus Room. Hey, everybody. How's it going out there? It's the boys from the Midwest back kicking it here in the Rumpus Room. And let's hit them with the takeaway message of the day. So I've been reading a lot about Stoicism, I think, over the last few weeks, because one of the things I've been trying to think about is what is with, within my control and what isn't within my control. And it's really easy to try to uh, think about stuff that, you know, I really have no impact on and to get frustrated. And what I've been struggling, I think, with, and we'll, I think, get into this a little bit, is how do we put our energy towards learning from everything? How do we make sustainable improvements to our lives, but also kind of the businesses we work with? And then the thing that I think kind of nobody's really talking about is how do we measure accountability for all of these decisions that we're making? So when we think about, you know, kind of who's exerting, what, what control do we have? And I think as a, you know, as a population and as a community, we need to start thinking about how our decisions are impacting everybody and not just uh, being so risk averse. Uh, so, you know, that's kind of the takeaway message of the day is, you know, let's figure out what is, for me, what is in my control and what is in my control and then how do I exert some type of power or influence on the things in my control? Yeah, um, obviously, if you turn on the news these days, it's going to be, um, you're going to feel helpless. You're going to feel pretty into look at anything uh, I look at I just stay away from it and the whole experience has just been I'm still in the middle of you know my my opinion on the coronavirus because I I don't have the stay at home um, you know I don't necessarily think the stay at home order is the best thing that ever came around um, when you look at obviously the economic impact um, but also the um, the utilization of resources are just not optimal right now. We've got a lot of hospitals in certain areas of the country that are very under um, underutilized. And um, I think your I think a big question is how do you more more appropriately match demand and supply? Um, and that's really not been. I mean, we've thrown any sort of demand versus supply um, decision out of the window because of several nations' early experience with the virus, which was zero preparation and zero um, and zero restrictions. So sure, you know, there have been shortages for certain things, but in the United States, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't, we haven't had anywhere near the amount of shortages or challenges that other countries have had. We've, we've been, I think that the narrative would have you believe that the United States is having the worst response ever in the world to the coronavirus, but that's entirely not accurate. I think it's been a poor response in certain elements and others have been good. And it's just been so hard to wade through all of this stuff because, um, I, I think we're, I, I think we're overreacting with the stay-at-home order. I, re I really do. I don't. I mean, I, there could be 
Well, you, you said in Minnesota, for example, the average age of an individual who's dying is 88, which is probably, I mean, fairly appropriate. Uh, you know, I don't know. Um, it's just. Yeah. And I think, I think considering, I think the information that people are working with, you start to question when you start to make all of these decisions, because it's like if the average age in Minnesota, so that, you know, we are, we have a very, I think we have the lowest infection rate in the entire country, just in terms of per capita infection rate. And we have an average age death of 88. Uh, those two years, you know, you wonder what, so we just, we just extended our stay at home thing another two, two weeks or maybe two and a half weeks, whatever the numbers until the beginning of May. And this is a, you should not conduct any type of business if you're not a care provider. Also limiting healthcare providers to anything that's elective. So there's a ton of limits that are being set on us as a community. And, you know, we're working through these models, which I would say, you know, weeks ago were, you know, 2 million people were going to die. And now there's one that came out that 60,000 people are going to die. And everybody's... 100,000, yeah. Yep. You know, and and the number keeps drastically going down. And the people are saying, well, that's attributed to everybody staying at home, which, you know, I think there's partial credit that can be given to that. But I think there's also a lot of credit to, you know, I I don't want to give full credit to the actions we're taking you know, like cutting off travel to China, you know, some of these other things that we did to limit the virus spread. Um, And the difficult thing becomes when we're, when they pull the emotional card to talk about human lives, like trying to save human lives and we're killing human lives and the overall death rate for the country is decreased. You know, there's, there's a lot of people dying. So, you know, I think this is a narrative that it's popular. I think it's easier to kind of support what we're doing, this stay-at-home thing. Um, but it sounds like, I think your point about we're not even close to stressed as a health community, you know, I wonder why this decision to, to extend the, the stay-at-home order. Well, it's obviously because it's a safe thing to do because you as a politician won't be won't be crucified for pushing a stay at home order because you will be insulated from the economic reprisals because one your job isn't at risk and two you're going to have the ability to blame coronavirus for any sort of economic downturn so you have a the only the, as a politician you only lose in this scenario if you take a hard look and say you know, we're going to loosen the restrictions for a little bit, keep an eye on hospital uh, utilization. We may reinforce them. Um, that's that's looked at as stirring the pot. You're setting yourself up from an attack from somebody else who will be like, oh, my parent died from that thing you caused, blah, blah, blah. If you just lock it down, it's the safe play. And I think we're just going to learn about the real lasting impacts of that safe play because, yeah, Maybe the infection rate does go up. Maybe you have um, 
you know, more people who died or didn't have access to services, which would obviously be, be a travesty. But what if you have a generation of people who are gig economy workers who you're kind of ruining their livelihood? I mean, what if we expect, what if we have 10, 15% more unemployment in the market because of this? What about the 10 to 15% of likely young people who this is going to positively impact? And I don't want to make this into a class warfare thing where it's older generation versus younger generation. But I think the people who are really adversely affected are, I mean, obviously those individuals who weren't in, uh, were in more service industry, travel, hospitality jobs. And um, I just feel really bad. I just feel really sad about, um, I mean, I'm extremely fortunate that I work in the healthcare sector. So my, my my business has been you know I've been working more often which I'm happy to do um I also just really have a lot of empathy for all of those people that are impacted negatively from a you know family death that occurs from this or from um the um you know economic impact of this yeah and I think you know it's easy to look at the number of deaths attributed to coronavirus the one thing though that I think not considering is if somebody dies in the hospital and tests positive for coronavirus, that is attributed to a coronavirus death. You know, there's no autopsy that we're aware of that's being done on these people that, you know, they're living with multiple conditions. So I think there's a data collection issue, but the, the, the impacts that we can't measure are, you know, is there an increase in depression? I think data out there and you may know this better than I do but when the economy goes into a, a recession and people's lives are significantly impacted by not being able to make a livable wage or having to adjust their living situation um, you wonder what those impacts are on a community on you know the people around us uh, if we're giving people the opportunity to live autonomously and work, uh, that also is a massive issue that the government of closing down businesses and locking everything down and saying, you know, we know, we know what the right solution is here. It is to lock everything down. When, you know, I struggle to trust that that is what is necessary. Um, you know, I really feel, you know, leaders are in a very tough position. I think right now you are getting to see who's stepping in and making changes and who doesn't. And I think what I've, what I've grown to learn, and, you know, this is just my personal opinion, is I think, you know, for how much we are trusting into our governments, it seems like they are not, not doing a good job. You know, we weren't prepared for this, which, you know, anybody can argue that's okay. Um, I think our response has been to shut everything down. Um, that, you know, that, that is a, it's a pretty aggressive approach. Um, and they're enforcing it with, you know, tickets and more money and things like that. And I don't know how, how much they're doing that, but I think it's a, it's a very, uh, very quick reaction. I think the longer we keep this stay, stay at home measure and, um, kind of force the economy and even people we're removing decision making for a lot of people but I just think there's a lot of things that we aren't 
hearing. And one of the things that kind of spurred me in a lot of this tailspin and frustration was uh, Michael Burry, who, if you've seen the movie The Big Short, uh, he is the uh, genius that basically did the mortgage crisis and he raised a lot of a lot of uh, red flag before that happened and he made a lot of money off of a big short he also has spoken out uh, over the last few days around how this is a very big error the way we're going and he was bringing up the points around infection rates and we're making decisions off of really bad data and that's hard to hear and he has been very quiet until now and you know so I think it it does all of us some good to start hearing maybe another side of the story which is is this really the right way to shut everything down well and, and the amount of conversation and chatter and public opinion that is out there is just mind-boggling like let's take for example the last unilateral kind of occurrence that the world encountered it was definitely world war ii so the war effort was on people's minds in the united states and what you had is you had those who thought we should be in the war and those who thought we shouldn't be in the war but you know what that equates to that equates to conversation at the bus stop, that equates to face-to-face -face conversation when people are milling about, that equates to the social dynamics that emerge in person and what we're seeing today. Um, and, and that's tremendously challenging to measure in terms of public opinion, really having a pulse on the general sway of the population. You put that in today's standards, for example, now you've got extremely definitive measures of public opinion on this entire epidemic. I, I think we're really at risk of being manipulated by politicians in this and, and by people in general telling us what we want to hear or what the general consensus has. I don't think there's been a lot of hard-hitting stuff that has come out in terms of you know what's what's really best for the nation i think we just kind of to me it just strikes me as a one-dimensional strategy it doesn't it doesn't feel to me like it's very multifaceted which is just kind of disappointing <clears throat> it is disappointing and the more information i think you went to and you have to really uh find alternative sources and i think i'm trying to read a lot of different people to get a variety here because it can be very easy to flip open our local newspaper local newspapers and read the same story which is regurgitating evidence from sources and you're seeing a lot of these people that are making these bold predictions and they're drastically off and there's not a lot of accountability um for a lot of the decisions that were that you know the government or these these restrictions that they're making and I just my struggle is how do we look at these decisions objectively and can we can we as a population hold people accountable for these decisions you know how do we measure because a big thing of you know here's my view on governmental policy uh, it, it's obviously very 
I'm working on this and trying to understand, but I see government as a very uh, un not not efficient place of resources. So they they are uh, not a good use of how to spend money. And I think what we're seeing is that uh, kind of playing out here. And I just wonder how can we adjust the system of government? How do we change things? And you know voting is great and there's a lot of things we can do yet that is a it's a really short time you know like we only have one chance for four years for president and you can vote locally um but we're not we don't have a lot of choices you know you got the republicans and you have the democrats and there's not really a lot of independent so you know is i don't know is independent the way to solve this or what what are some ways that you think we could you know provide some type of movement forward here? I don't know. Um, Two-party system is obviously the lesser of two evils. Speaking of which, I think it's amazing that, I mean, it was inevitable that Sanders was going to drop out of the election, but um, the amount of backlash that I've seen online from Sanders dropping out from young people is very, very, telling shall we say seeing tons of people posting online about how the old democratic establishment has just thrown the election again they've disenfranchised entire generations of voters that they need they're relying on their old party dynamics and i again i i I think this is going to be a land maybe the democrats can come up with a really interesting way to spin screwing up the coronavirus. I mean, that would be their only angle on trying to beat Trump. But at this point, I find it really, really fascinating that we're going to have a Biden versus Trump 2020 political election. <laughs> I think that is pretty frustrating to see. But I'll tell you, I haven't seen a, I haven't seen a ticket in my lifetime that I've been excited about both of the people that were running for office. I mean, yeah. Romney or Obama, John Kerry or George Bush. I mean, it's just been horrible. Like we've, I've, I've never seen like a, wow, we've really got a couple of good people who are, you know, running to be our president. It's always been like, oh shit, who do I have to pick? It's a lesser of two evils, which is, is really a shame. Um, I wonder if other generations feel that way. I don't know. Yeah, I think as the as the millennial generation, uh, we I've noticed that a lot of people our age they feel represented by their president, and their president represents them. So I think a lot of the frustration that we heard, you know, maybe around our friends, is I don't want Trump representing me in the world you know so people are viewing the president which is which is so odd because i in no way feel that he's a representation of me (laughs) neither do i i I don't take any ownership over no him having any ownership over me (laughs) no or like if he goes out and has sex with stormy daniels that doesn't make me a bad person because he's the president (laughs) like where did that come from it's a good uh, question. I, think, I don't know. 
I do know it's identity politics. It's because people are looking for that identity. And so they're, and I think Obama won't really like push that identity agenda, not from a pushing race card, but like he made being a Democrat and being a progressive, like an identity that was sought after. Yeah. Right. People, people wanted to be, people wanted to be a part of the progressive movement because he was so charismatic. He was obviously the first African-American president. There was a lot of hope. There was a lot of energy. There was a lot of youthfulness and that was cool. That was, that was an identity. And so I think our generation has been like still holding on to that reality and um, never really, never really has gotten that back. So that's why I think people are so hard on, um, you know, these politicians today, which may, they may very well have every reason to be, but I think it's because that identity representation is really not there because you've got old white men typically who obviously the vast majority of the United States doesn't identify with at this time. Unfortunately, the vast, that vast majority of the United States doesn't also make their asses to the polls really as readily as the other ones. Yeah. So well, and that, doesn't really that, matter. That's the hard thing. Well, and, and you see what you're seeing now in the politic world is really what drives these behaviors. And there's donors on each side of the ticket that are driving what the priorities are. And so there's even more of a realization, I think, of I don't identify with this person, but what they do is they appease to a group of people that is in the power and in the control. And it's, it's uh, something that I think when we have more information, you know, that's something that I think the internet's doing a better job of. There's obviously severe downsides to what the internet's doing, but I, you know, I was just thinking, somebody was talking about, well, what is mainstream media? Well, I don't know a lot of people that watch the news anymore. I don't know a lot of people that have even some, frankly, TV, TV uh, subscriptions, but I know they're watching YouTube videos and watching podcasts and or listening to podcasts and they're consuming media. It's just a matter of where we get it. So I, I, I think this informational change, um, you know, how do we, how do we understand how this information change contributes to what we're doing? Because I think this identity is driven by people and, and we've come to really understand how humans are driven to act and how do we uh, get people to feel really emotional about a topic. And that has driven a lot of this, I think, uh, movements. Cause you know, what, what are, what do we, what do we need to do to get people to vote? You need to motivate them. So how do you motivate them? Well, the biggest thing is to get them to be emotional. So how do we get people emotional? You know, I think there's strategies that are in place that are, you know, taking advantage of a lot of people. So, yeah, I think right now is just a chance for us to look at how leaders handle this crisis and, you know, as somebody who's uh, a business owner, it's really a tough time, you know, having to apply for loans and to figure out who you're hiring and firing. And these are really difficult decisions that people are making. Um, and then to hear the narrative of stay at home is, is tough. 
Yeah, there's it, it, it's a it's a gruesome dichotomy to be constantly weighing, and that's one of the reasons I've been. You know, obviously we've expounded on this topic for a little bit today, but um, I, I haven't spoken with a lot of people um, about it just because. I don't know that there is even an, an intelligent argument one way or the other. It's like, you know, none of, nobody will know who is right on this thing until five months, six months, a year from now when the data comes out and we can actually look at the actions and the consequences and figure out, well, you know, how do we mitigate something like this? It's kind of like everybody's in the middle of attacking the beaches of Normandy right now. And you got everybody yelling, you know, oh, we got to go left. Oh, we got to go right. And and that's that's just what's going on. And nobody's going to know if we should have gone left or right until the beach is actually stormed. And this beach isn't going to be stormed for a little while. I mean, shit, we've got we got months on end ahead of ahead of the, you know, ahead of us. We do. So knowing that you've got all this time, what are you what are what are some ways that you're thinking about how to handle yourself now, but also over the next few months? What are what are your thoughts? I've been throwing myself into my work, that's for sure. Um, trying to get outside when it's nice out, which is really great. Can you imagine if this pandemic came through and it was actually January? That would be psycho. People would be losing their minds in Minnesota. Um, at least we get. Yeah, at least we get some semblance of outdoor activity. So, you know, I go on walks. Um, I, I've started a collection of a, of a gym. Out. So there's a high school football field near where I live. And I've started going into the woods and pulling out the heaviest things I can find and starting a makeshift uh, gymnasium, basically. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just to keep myself entertained if I'm basically like finding big heavy rocks, finding a big log, finding poles and just so I don't know. I mean, I'm, I, I played a little bit of video games with my friends last weekend. I know video games are taken off. That's occupying tons of people's time and energy, which is great. I'm not, I'm not a gamer and not into the consoles. Um, other than that, you know, I guess playing cribbage with my friends. A lot of my friends are playing online video poker. So they're doing like private rooms where you have your own kind of tournament rules and, um, you know, everybody's got a headset and whatever, and you can talk. Uh, so that's, I haven't joined one of those yet, but that has been something. Um, I don't know, really, it's kind of felt like I've, I've had my nose to the grindstone for the, for the, entire outbreak um it really hasn't been like i've got a lot of idle time that i'm trying to kill which i think could be a good thing uh, i don't know if you feel that kind of nose to the grindstone type of energy um could just be because yeah, I'm totally, in the healthcare totally industry do. or yeah you do yeah i totally do i mean the difficult thing is when you are i mean surrounding this entire thing and i've talked to a number of different people that are maybe that are in small business and there's a lot of decision making that has to happen quite rapidly, you know, and it's not like, Oh, I, I need to determine what product to buy. It is. I need to figure out how many employees I can have. I need to get a loan in the next two weeks in order to pay salaries, or I need to figure out 
you know, it's like these are pretty difficult decisions. What part of the what part of the uh, house lights do I turn off? What part do I keep on? And and it's you know, so it's causing a lot of people to make decisions, um, which is really you know, it's focusing. It it focuses the mind a lot. So that means there's a lot of time that I've spent trying to figure out what's going on. And, you know, I, I'm fortunate enough, you know, to be in the space where I have a product that is, and I think I talked about this last time, I have a product that is um, telemedicine. We are virtual. So in terms of now, we can help out. We're trying to figure out how to get these resources into people's hands so they can, you know, get the care they need uh, when they need it and from the people that they need it from. And it's really how do we break into and get people to know that, but it, it really focuses the mind. So a lot of the time that I've been spending is, you know, what are the immediate needs that I need to do instead of wasting a lot of time? There's just not a lot of that. So I think it's a good focuser. And that's been a big thing for me is how do I focus my time on things that move the ball forward. So my reading that I've been doing have been a lot more, I'd say reading for me is breaking out into two separate buckets. It's philosophical, so more reading on stoicism and more reading on things that will help curb my, you know, anxiety and even meeting of life questions. I've been thinking a lot more about death. Um, I've been thinking about you know, what if I, what if I die because of this disease? What would that mean? And then it's not looking at it in so much of a negative, you know, like I'm not trying to work myself up, but just trying to look at it and use it as a thing of, you know, what does death really mean? And so it's, it's kind of forcing me to, to think about these questions that are easy to avoid in the normal day. Um, so I think a lot of the, you know, there's been kind of the philosophy side, but there are, you know, what do I need to learn right now to move the ball forward for my business? And what are some sales things, you know, how, how, how can I take the business and move it forward as fast as possible? So that, that helps you make decisions a lot quicker. And instead of relying on, you know, 90% of the information you make it with, you know, 50 or 40, or there's a lot less that you feel confident in, um, but it does spur decision-making. So I think that's a lot of my time I can put there. And then you're, you know, how do you support the people around you? How do you have conversations with your friends? How do you listen appropriately? How do you um, not have your opinion be the center of all attention? So I think we talked about, we're not hearing a lot of other attention. Well, I'm doing a better job of making sure my opinion is not the center of the conversation. Uh, I think that's another piece. So trying to listen and support because you, you feel the pain from a lot of people when you talk to them. Uh, you feel the frustration around what they're dealing with. You, you can hear the fear. I mean, you, I, I feel like this is a good exercise for me and awareness of what, how people are truly feeling. So yeah, that, those are some things that I've been doing to try to, try to try to move this positively forward because uh, there's a clear decision that you can make as to uh, what information do, you, do do I have 
and what can I use and what is just completely out of my control? What is something that I can have absolutely no impact on? Um, so yeah, that's, a couple of things focusers. we should come back to the death conversation because I've been thinking about it quite a bit more too. But first I want to talk about that. Um, the awareness piece. Um, so I had a email exchange with two of my previous clients who have turned into very good friends of mine. And one of them is probably 72. One of them is probably 68 or 69. And um, so obviously these guys are more at risk. You know, they're older gentlemen, both are in pretty good shape doing all of the necessary quarantining and things like that. Um, one of them had an email that was very jovial, very uh, uplifting, which I felt great about. And, and one of them was, was clearly a little bit more on the uh, offensive in terms of like, you know, oh, this is very serious. We need to have the young people take it as seriously as everybody else. And I felt a little bit of this, you know, fear from him. Um, and then, had another email or text exchange with one of my older cousins and to even the, the thing that took me back the most is that there was an expression of fear because here's a guy who I've looked up to my entire life, idolized, thought he was essentially the coolest person ever had it going on in every capacity and still does to this day, very much, you know, aspire to have similar right. success. Yeah, he's a rock star. He's a stud. And to see that he was expressing fear and doubt and concern, it, I, I literally was taken aback. I was just like, oh, my God. I cannot believe that he's feeling this way. And at first, I was kind of like, dude, come on. We're going to be fine. Um, and then when I had that response, when you talked about, like, you figure out your own shit in terms of your relationship to other people, in terms of your opinion. And that's been super apparent, which I think is why I've been so tired of listening to coronavirus conversation, because so much of it is about, here's my opinion, as opposed to it being an opportunity to connect people. Because one of the great things about this is I'm talking to people I would never talk to simply because we're expressing, you know, mutual concern for one another. And I um, I have had numerous times where, um, you know, my significant other has had, had to remind me, hey, you know, people don't perceive the virus like you do, so you can't be as cavalier or, um, you know, like really having sort of a self-reflective type of um, relationship with others in relationship, in relation to this sort of like punctual event. Mm -hmm. so I've, I've, yeah. I've enjoyed that aspect um, and, and the other uh, the other piece is this this dying stuff I've been thinking a lot more about that um, not in a real sense like I'm concerned about it sure I get out and I do my running and my makeshift gym just to make sure I get my team moving but um, yeah, I mean, mortality is becoming a, a more an issue that's more on the forefront. And um, I, I I can't say any time that my thoughts are going to obviously prepare me for, you know, that occurrence. But it's, it's definitely, you know, death is now more on the mind of people. So it's, 
and I think that's overall a healthy thing because I think death needs to be something that we discuss. And I think this pandemic is a very good example of how bad an entire generation, an entire existence of people is at dealing with the potential of death occurring. You could argue that tons of this downstream effects, these actions are because of the fact that our society is so equipped, so under-equipped to deal with the notion of death. Oh, I completely agree. Uh, you know, and, and look at the actions that we're taking. We're mass producing ventilators, which are and it, you know, first extenders. Of all, and, mm-hmm. First of all, when are, great, let's get them out. Is somebody really capable to go to market with a new ventilator product in three weeks? Because if they are, that's awesome and incredible. But like, I've never heard of any supply chain or any production process that, first of all, you're going to get FDA approval when you get this new device. I, it just it blows my mind that people are capable of producing a ventilator in time to impact the actual shortage, which at this point, New York is decreasing in their amount of cases. There's a real possibility that we'll be able to take ventilators from less populated areas or from areas that are already hit and get them to the new epicenters. You know, like when you delay the, the onset of the disease, obviously you get to better manage your supplies. So um, that, bog- that just boggles my mind if people can actually produce entirely new ventilator in a month to deal with the pandemic. That's, that's freaking wild. And I don't, it is and amazing. I, and I'm saying that because I don't think it's going to happen. <laughs> I think this, yeah, here's, I, your, here's your order of 10,000 ventilators, you know, in June. Like, sweet. Now what? <laughs> yeah. It, well, you know, New York at one point said we need 30,000 ventilators. And now oh, the number is a lot less, obviously. But but this is this was the number that was being requested. And... You know, I think this response to the pandemic is definitely a fear over death. And what's interesting is when I've been speaking to, let's just say, grandparents and talking to them about how they're handling the situation, I think there's a level of clarity that I'm not finding in the population that is younger. You know, kind of like, you know, we've dealt with a lot of these risks our entire life. <laughs> we've, there's a lot of risky things in life. Um, and, you know, a lot of elders, you know, it, whether it's coronavirus or pneumonia or the flu or, or other, you know, conditions, I think they do understand the risk of what they're under. And I think this is such a... Uh, thing that, that you know it's it's really scaring i think the younger people and having to think about that and that's you know that it's it's funny that you say that because that's been a huge part of the conversation is we're so and this is what our healthcare system does is we try to uh fix injury prevent death we try to do things uh to elongate the human life i think if you Talk to anybody that has a relative that has uh, gone through the hospital system in the last five years of their life. There's a, a huge sense of frustration 
where instead of it about dying and how do we comfortably honor the request of people, it becomes how do we keep them around for another six months to a year, which is a conversation I think is not, you know, there's not a lot of people that are talking about how do we, how do we really look at what we're doing? How do we identify what people really want and we say to them? Uh, so it's just, uh, it's really, I hope what we can do is use this kind of experience and opportunity to, to change how we view healthcare and how we view death and how we view disease. And, and these are things that um, as a younger person, I haven't been thinking about death and a lot of these topics nearly as much as I've been thinking about, you know, a lot a lot of things that probably shouldn't be on my priority list of what I, what I need to be doing. So this is getting us to ba back to more of basic need. Um, and so that's where I, I just, it, it, you don't hear this part of the conversation very much. So it's really, no, it's non-existent in my very brief interactions with mainstream media, but I feel like it's central to the entire crisis is, is people feeling um human you know i mean people the last 70 years since world war ii has been i mean people always tried to make themselves feel more comfortable but we're at a state of such comfort such ease of access such low perceived risk that this is a time where we're being reminded of our own mortality on a global scale. And um, it's terrifying to a lot of people. And rightly so, it's a very terrifying thing, but I think it really does expose how ill-equipped we are to actually address the idea of our own mortality, which I would look at and then say, well, okay, you know, Sure, let's have another reserve of ventilators and PPE and, you know, whatever your medications are that you want to keep, you know, on hand. But let's also have a conversation about, like, what it means to be immortal, what it means to die, what it, you know, and since our institutions that have traditionally um, championed those discussions, you know, religion, namely, have far been pushed to the side by you know younger and younger generations of people who opt for you know different social groups but social groups with that sort of underlying um, moral or ethical background i think it's really showing like how without a rudder the social kind of mindset of people can be and as such you get these gross simplifications of people being like oh stay home oh go out and buy toilet paper you know these are not higher level processing thoughts or actions that are downstream of a catastrophic event like that this is this is like very reactionary thinking which i think to me is, is the frustrating part i i agree and i think what I think one of the things that we built our economy on and our, I think almost human race on is growth. So when you think of how do we, how do we move forward? 
we are constantly focused on growth. How do we add more? How do we add more? How do we add more? And that is not, that is no, not a part of that. It, it isn't. And in order, you know, when you look at nature, and this is what I've spent a lot of my time meditating on. And it was interesting as I was chopping, I was outside chopping some wood, and there was a dead tree there that had been sitting there for a while. But when you looked at the soil around the tree, it was extremely, extremely healthy. So you kind of see the process of death and growth. Um, but I, I think we've been so one side focused on how do we put up all these trees? You know, how do we make this happen where, you know, a lot of the regeneration that happens for growth has to have some type of loss or death or whatever, whatever we want to call it. Uh, but I think we've built, you know, uh, the religious institution brings up an interesting point of how do we add more members? How do we get more donations? How do we get more, you know, I think a lot of the focus that I feel and some of my frustration with these institutions is, you know, how do we, how do we get more people? How do we get more, more donations so we can grow, grow bigger and get our message out to more people and get people. It's a very, it's a big focus on how do we expand our message and our mission to more people, uh, you know, and, and I think there's less of a focus on how do we, you know, how do we truly handle, you know, the people were, that are here. And, and, you know, I think a lot of the, the feeling that I have when you go and when you talk to people is how do we grow? How do we grow? How do we grow? And there's this conversation of both in things also need to, you know, need to pass on and need to go in order for death to happen. And so that's been a lot of my kind of meditation lately. And it's been causing, you know, a lot of these interesting, you know, personal conversations. And, you know, I, I think it's actually, I'm, I'm grateful that I can have some type of awareness of this. And, and I don't think this would have happened if I, you know, if we were continuing on without the virus. Well, yeah, it's an interesting, it's a very interesting um, kind of representation of the insulation, right? You know, you have to go out into nature in order to expose yourself of the cyclical nature of life and death. And, you know, obviously, urban city centers are the places where the virus is hitting the hardest. And um, I think there's a degree of panic. I think there's a degree of, you know, environmental factors in terms of close proximity, but there's also very much uh, a mental perspective. And I, I hate, to, I hate to, I hate to have to say this, but it's on my mind. And to a certain degree, um, I mean, placebo effect is very real. We all know that, right? And yeah. I think that, I think that, so a, a, a friend of mine, and obviously there's a lot of salt that you better throw on this, but like a friend of mine used to date this gentleman who ended up getting testicular cancer at the age of 23, or not 25, roughly. And um, his significant other asked him and was like, hey, you know, what, what, oh, I'm so sorry, you know, what happened? And when he got the diagnosis, he actually came back to her and he just said, I knew this was going to happen to me. I just knew I was going to get cancer at a young age. 
And then that kind of made me blow back and be like, whoa, you know, I mean, that's pretty tough thing to put on yourself. Um, Then I see this picture on social media. And again, I'm just speaking in anecdotes, but there's a young girl who was like immunocompromised and she was texting back and forth with her mother and her mother was much less cavalier about the virus. Her, Her mother was saying, something about, oh, don't worry, blah, blah, blah. And this, this young girl was like, oh, you know, no, it's a big deal. I'm, I'm, I'm at risk for getting coronavirus. What do you know? Lo and behold, then she takes a picture of herself in a hospital bed, in a gown, you know, testing positive for coronavirus. And then she sends it as a picture back to her mother as like, ha ha, told you I got coronavirus, bitch. And <laughs> I, again, was just like, taken aback because um oftentimes life kind of gets you gives you what you ask for in in the most screwed up ways possible and it's been something that has really made me bite my tongue in terms of you know i i was i was chuckling to myself because it's been feeling like doom and gloom for a very long time and there have been all these uplifting messages on Facebook, right? People are like, oh, yay, blah, blah, blah. You know, here's a song about people, you know, singing Imagine and whatever. It's all going to be okay. I mean, just bullshit shit, garbage. And <laughs> Let's just call it bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so I was going to send this message to my buddies that was like, oh, yeah, I just want everybody to feel better, you know. And so here's a little excerpt of a song. And I wanted to send them uh, Dira's Ray by Mozart. It's like uh, the second or third movement of his, have his scene Requiem, or his, uh, his, uh, his symphony Requiem. Well, just called Requiem. And, um, and it's a really intense song, and you would know exactly what I'm saying. It's like Dira's Ray, Dira's Villa, Sobeteclo. And it's like really intense. And it's something yeah, we mean. we sang that in choir, actually. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's, and a, I was it's an amazing my song. It's a great song. Mm-hmm. I was going to send that to my buddies as just like joke because it was obviously, you know, the the contrast of the two, you know, sort of uplifting message and then the, the the song that's obviously not. But um, I w- I just kind of held back and I was like, I just I just don't feel comfortable given the amount of like karma or whatever that that would put out in the universe that I'm making fun of this thing even though I'm not really making fun of this thing I'm making fun of the people I just was like I I just don't feel comfortable because um, I'm seeing too many examples of people who are getting out over their ski tips and getting um, screwed because of it yeah and I, I think there's definitely something when you're talking about placebo effects and you're talking about um, you know, I think what you think about and what you wish for and what you spend your mind, you know, what you kind of put in your mental sphere, that, that stuff ends up happening to you. Um, there's a lot of different, you know, you can go down the whole self-help movement. And I think that's a pretty big, a pretty big kind of pillar in that type of movement is what you think about you get. So if, if you think I can only be a, um, 
you know, I can only be this type of person. Let's just say I can only work in, in a factory and I can only do these things. Uh, what they are trying to do is get you to believe that you can get out of that situation. And then when you start to think of that thing or that type of movement, uh, then you will, the opportunities will present themselves differently. So you're going to see an opportunity to, okay, well, maybe this class I can study, or this is a book I can pick up. There's just, your, your mind is more aware of the alternative, which is not the situation you're in. It allows you to see these actions. And, you know, I wonder with, you know, karma and all of these things, if you spend your time thinking, I'm going to get coronavirus, what do you do? You go you say, oh my gosh, I might have it. I'm going to go get tested. Well, where do you know? Where do you get infected the most in the hospital? So now you may have it. You know, and that's just, again, an anecdote. But I think uh, all the information that I've been hearing and reading is the hospital is a really bad place to go. And that's a great place to, to get a virus like this. So it's, it's interesting. I think people that, uh, you know, they, they really are almost wishing that. And that's, and I, it's funny because I have that hesitation all of the time is once you commit to sending something or even saying something on a podcast or saying something to your friends, then it's out in the atmosphere and it could, what does, you don't really, I don't think we really understand energy well enough to know what the, the real impacts are. So I definitely have that hesitation as well to, you know, I don't want to speak ill or, you know, you just, you wonder, there's a lot more, you wonder what, what's out there. Cause I, I really don't think we as humans understand the true impact of our thoughts and of our, our mindsets of what we do every day and what we think about and what we consume. I think we've hit on that topic a lot in this podcast is what do we read? And when you surround yourself with that type of information, where does it go? So you know, I, I think that's just a huge part of this, this awareness that the, this virus is bringing is what are we, what do you surround yourself with? And you can continue on your same path or, or maybe use this as an opportunity to open and expand your mind on these things. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I think that's a great point to end on there. So um, that's all we got for you today uh check back in next week and we'll be kicking it here in the rumpus room